Cool. Sue, 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 Sue. How are you this week, by the way? Because uh, I'm, I'm like death warm right now. Oh man, I'm so sorry. I, I'm okay. Um, it's actually taken me a little while to get over my cold or flu. I don't really know. It was pretty bad for a while. Like, do you have a fever or anything, or is it mostly just a sore throat? Uh, the or fever's back under control, thing. but uh, yeah, I was like, <clears throat> um, had like <clears throat> my my uh, my my head congestion, the coughing, my uh, stomach ache. It was like, yeah, this is definitely a flu. It's uh it humbled me for a bit i had to i had to go lay down last night i think i went to bed oh. at like yeah i was i was in bed from about like eight thirty nine o'clock wow okay yeah. um and you got tested for covid uh yeah so i guess i'm i'm, I'm just waiting for it to come back but i i doubt it's covid it's probably just uh yeah it's, it, my kids brought it into the house it's probably just like um uh the flu okay. in school yeah 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 they all right, always, well, like they they barely show any symptoms, and I get wrecked. Uh yeah, I um, that's, that's, that's the man flu for you. <laughs> yeah, the whole kids thing. I mean, a lot of people I know, almost everybody I know that's gotten sick has been through kids through the school system mm-hmm. and all that. Yeah, but uh, <clears throat> uh, yeah, you don't have to strain your voice. Like, get some rest. You don't have to. I'll try to handle it. Um, as much as I can. <laughs> um, if I start messaging you though, like um, help, help, SOS, then you can... <laughs> <All good. laughs> I'll try not to do that. All right. Um, so yeah, I thought today we could just have a little chat with um, our uh, with, with you know just have a chat about specifically. I wanted to talk about the wonderful decision by the wonderful government of Canada, and of course, I'm being sarcastic. So in case you didn't know, Canada has just recently, I believe yesterday the news broke, decided to buy uh, F-35 fighter jets from Lockheed Martin and spend. And Canada spending, I've, I've seen different numbers, but I think the most reliable number I've seen is about 19 billion Canadian dollars. Um, oh, you got you to tell, tell the audience how many of them were purchased. This is... It's actually really funny to me. 88. You know how many? 88. 88 F-35s were purchased. I'm like, could you seriously, could you guys please just try to avoid or like try to make it look like you're not on the part of the... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know what that, like, I, I, I guess that number is arbitrary. I don't know what it's based on, mm. but it does not look good. Yeah. It is, it is a very crappy situation and, um, Tab is asking in the comments, is there any way to slow down the procurement? I mean, there has been actually like um, World Beyond War, which is a peace organization in Canada. And I'm in the Canadian Peace Congress and the Toronto Association for Peace and Solidarity. And we work with uh, different organizations, including World Beyond War and Voice of Women, Canadian Voice of Women for Peace um, and various other organizations. And um, there have been protests, demonstrations, petitions, all of that to, you know, going back, I think, a year or two years even to uh, that have been trying to bring attention to this uh, on because this was a bid, like a bidding war that Canada, you know, had and invited like a whole bunch of military corporation, you know, weapons uh, manufacturers and military corporations um, to bid on this. And so Canada finally decided on Lockheed Martin. I think they were also considering like Boeing and 
Uh, I think their second favorite is Saab, S-A-A-B, which is, I guess, they, they also make um, fighter jets. So, uh, yeah, I didn't even know that. But apparently, so I read that if the Lockheed Martin thing, because it still sort of has to be, I guess they have to sign whatever contract. So if for any reason it doesn't go through, they're going to go with Saab. But in any case, they're oh, definitely not, buying not these fighter, fighter jets. jets. Also air defense systems. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, um, so, and the funny thing is that the conservatives before were going to buy 65 of them. So now the liberals are buying 88. So, you know, anybody who thinks that liberals are 10, you know, a lot of people seem to think liberals are the lesser evil. I mean, maybe on some domestic things, but not really, I would say. Okay, they legalized weed, I guess. That's great. So everybody's too stoned to even come out to anti-war marches now. Wonderful. Um, But... uh, (laughs) Anyway, so, um, okay, what I wanted to also talk about is, and maybe somebody can, like, help me understand, because I'm not really, like, 100%, like, in, up on my military technology lingo, whatever, but I understand that the F-35s are actually really shitty planes, and they tend to, like, fall apart at, like, the speeds that they're supposed to go at. So if anybody knows more about this technology than me, please do come up and tell me about all about it. Because I read an article, somebody linked it from last year that said the U.S. Air Force quietly admits the F-35 is a failure. Um, and this article quotes like um, uh, Air Force Chief of Staff who talks about like um, uh he he said one of the uh, one of the potential solutions with for the F 35s issue, recent issues is to fly the plane less often. <laughs> That's actually what the United States Air Force uh, fucking chief of staff said um, is to fly the plane less often. And he compared it to driving a Ferrari. You don't drive a Ferrari to work every day. You only drive it on Sundays. So um, anyway, it's a big shit show. So Canada's basically shelling out close to $20 billion, which, you know, never mind that Canada has basically stopped testing for COVID. Canada has um, um, all kinds of um, funding cuts that are also in the works. The new budget is going to come out soon. So, you know, all of that, all of our social programs and healthcare and transit and infrastructure and, and long-term care and childcare, all of that can just go down the drain. Never mind that, uh, you know, all of the, um, issues in various uh, remote and indigenous communities, like getting basic uh, access to basic drinking water. Um, But all of that is not important. Buying these fucking 88, you know, um, toasters uh, that are going to burn up like at like the first uh, first time you hit the, uh, the the accelerator. That's important. And spending fucking 20 billion dollars of Canadian taxpayers money. So. Anyway, if anybody wants to come up or talk about anything else, uh, you don't have to be Canadian to talk about this. If you know anything about the um, the way that the F-35 is a total piece of shit, please feel free to come up. Um, the other thing is that we have also been seeing um, the Ukrainian, uh, um, I guess there's peace talks going on in, in Turkey right now. I also heard that, you know, the Ukrainian president Zelensky was going around, he went to the Canadian Parliament and to the U.S., uh, whatever, Congress, and he did this whole show with the big screen and everything. Um, you know, like, very, like, what was that? Uh, 
Apple commercial from the 80s or whatever with the big screen. It's sort of supposed to harken back to 1984 or whatever. 1984 commercial, yeah. He, yeah, yeah. So he did that whole thing and he, he basically had these um, Zelensky had and then he spoke to Israel and he spoke to whatever other countries and for each country he had an Ireland he talked so he, he, he for each country he had customized his screenwriter I mean speechwriter um, had uh, customized uh, you know uh, the country that country's particular you know what what I guess they googled it and, and looked up in the Wikipedia like what what is the important thing to Canadians oh it's the CN Tower okay how about if we put in a speech what if the CN Tower was bombed you know and then like oh let's look up what what's and he with Israelis he talked about how basically Ukraine is now uh, suffering uh, another Holocaust and so he tried to like, do this uh, customized you know um, uh, sort of uh, sob story for each country. Um, however, somebody pointed out, A, I'm going to point out two things about that. How come he's never, he's always asking for weapons. How come he's never asked for like food or like actual like humanitarian aid? Like he's never asked for that. I don't know. I, am, am I mistaken in this? And secondly, um, I also heard that Austria uh, rejected uh, his uh, request to speak to their parliament or whatever they have there um so i thought that was interesting anyway um let's see comments we've got so anybody who wants who's putting in the comments you know all you guys come on up press the talk button chat because otherwise i'm just talking to myself over here and while that is fun to do i don't want to necessarily do that outside of the shower (laughs) (laughs) yeah please uh if you want to hit the uh the uh, the Q button, add yourself to the Q, and we can talk about this. I just find that the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I find that the uh, F-35 program, like seeing as how it's, it's been a joke for a number of years, and there's any number of articles written about just how bad um, this jet is. It doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't do anything better than its predecessors. So it was brought in to replace the A-10 Warthog which was a fairly reliable um, bomber jet. And uh, it, it experienced uh, what's called mission creep. That is, rather than trying to develop a specific plane for a specific purpose, they tried to make a fighter jet for all purposes. But, uh, you know, uh, everybody from <clears throat> the General Accountability Office to uh, former Air Force pilot, like everybody has just been absolutely shitting on this jet. And I'm not I'm not exactly clear what is what what we're supposed to gain from having this jet in our arsenal when the purpose for which we're procuring the jet apparently it can't even perform that function. So being able to operate in the extreme cold while the the jet would be deployed uh, to the Arctic North apparently to quote unquote protect Canadian sovereignty in the north uh, from Russia uh, that uh, its mission capable rate. Um, well, the, the, the average mission capable rate uh, for a fighter jet is supposed to be <clears throat> 80%. Um, but for the, uh, the F-35, that is the rate at which the jet can um, meet at least one of the missions that's assigned to it, well, it's at 69%. Uh, so there's, there's, there's nothing that this jet is doing better than any of its predecessors. And from the standpoint of 
uh, government procurement, it, it's essentially like a, a stop loss that the government's providing for Lockheed Martin, um, rather than uh, purchasing uh, a piece of weaponry that's supposed to complete certain uh, certain tasks and certain. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, like, like Canada, like, has actually convinced itself that the F-35 is going to protect Canada in case Russia attacks from the north? Is that is that the sort of that's logic? That's the idea, yeah. That's, that's the purpose, is that it's going to protect, quote-unquote, Arctic sovereignty. Um, but actually, I want to I want to um, take our first caller, because uh, Rena is in the queue. <clears throat> and uh, rather than me um, pontificating on how terrible this jet is, let's, uh, let's hear from the audience. Yeah. All right, you come on up. You can go and mute yourself, Raina. Uh, mute button is in the lower right-hand corner. Hello. 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 Good good to talk to both of you. I, I don't pretend to be any kind of weapons expert at all, uh, except I know the F-35 is a complete piece of trash and has cost literally billions and billions and billions of dollars. I've also read that it's, uh, it's dangerous for pilots, like the pilots can't be very tall at all. And I don't know if that's still a thing with fighter pilots. Like it was back in the first days of Mercury astronauts and stuff that they picked fighter pilots because they were short. But uh, yeah, that it, if something about if you try to eject, eject from it and you're too tall, it'll snap your neck or something. I don't know. Maybe they got that worked out. Um, I, I just have a more general question about Canada. Um, do you foresee any any prospects for Canada getting uh, st- to stop being uh, basically uh, the USA's poodle? And you know, I, I would ask the same question about European countries, but you guys are Canadian, so I'm going to ask you. I remember seeing a show on Netflix that I can't think of the name of right off the top of my head that basically showed that the FBI and the FBI and Drug Enforcement Administration uh, were all over Canada all the time meddling in Canadian stuff. And I, I don't know if that's true or not. I kind of suspect that it is. But um, yeah, is 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 there any is there any feeling like hey we ought to we ought to think for ourselves up here or you know is and secondary question is Trudeau still popular at all because he he just got he just got basically spanked in the European Parliament by a couple of different uh, country speakers which I did enjoy watching a lot but. Uh, Anyway, that that was my question. If if you if you see any prospects of Canada becoming a little more independent, or are you doomed to be stuck with us forever? <laughs> Thanks a bunch, Canada. That's exactly right, though. That's what I call it. <laughs> um, no, you're totally. Your concerns are well taken. I think the same thing. I also used to live in the U.S., so I understand how, like. I think I understand a lot more than even people who live in Canada and only lived in Canada, exactly how much the U S influences Canada. And um, yeah, no, there's definitely, I don't know, man. I think it's just, it's geography, unfortunately. 
I've given up. Like, honestly, I, I don't think Canada will ever have any kind of independent policy, foreign or domestic, um, unfortunately. What is it, like, like 80% of the Canadian population lives within 100 kilometers of the U.S. border? Yeah, yeah, I've read that. I mean, I think we, our destinies are permanently tied together. And that is why I'm constantly trying to help build socialism in the U.S. Um, because, yeah, I don't think it's happening here until it's happening there. Um, but, I, yeah, I mean, I think that um, the question is, is a good question. Um, I have question made that had that question in my mind uh, for the last 20 years or so uh, that I've, you know, been here. And um, as far as uh, Trudeau being popular... I'm not sure he was ever popular. I think that he's just popular among a certain segment of the, you know, liberal voter base that, uh, you know, he, he pushed the right buttons, at least uh, as uh, earlier on. And he comes from this family that is very whatever, you know, it's, it's sort of a dynasty. It's like the Kennedys of Canada, you know. And uh, so he has a sort of built in, you know, prince of the, Prince of Canadian, you know, you know, liberal... you know it's kind of wild is that mm-hmm. uh, he, he ran against his half sister for the liberal leadership. I don't know if a lot of people remember that. Oh, I didn't know that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, Deborah Coyne, um, who was the daughter of uh, one of uh, Pierre Trudeau's side pieces, uh, that is like uh, Deborah Coyne is Pierre Trudeau's daughter. And uh, she also ran against uh, Justin for the liberal leadership. Oh, yeah. Interesting. But, but anyway, like a, I, I didn't know he got his ass kicked. What happened in the European uh, NATO thing? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, there was like a, a, a few European leaders um, that basically they called them on the carpet uh, for being uh, essentially like a, a U.S. lackey. And then, of course, like the Canadian media responded by showing like how uh, deep in Trump's pockets they supposedly are and how deep in Russia's pockets they supposedly are. So it's not as if like any legitimate criticism can ever be levied against Excuse me, against Trudeau, against Canada, et cetera. It always has to be, well, the only reason that they're coming up with this is because they are pro-Putin. They're Putinistas. Wait, so the other NATO leaders called him out? Because aren't they just no, no, as no, no, much? No, no, uh, members no, Members of the EU. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, the European yeah. Parliament. Uh-huh. I don't, I don't know if, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's this, the same body. I'm. I'm kind of confused by how many different organizations there are in Europe all of a sudden. I guess I wasn't paying attention. I don't know if that's the same body where um, there's an Irish woman whose name is Claire Daly, who who frequently speaks out and uh, rips rips assorted countries up one side and down the other, and usually does it in about a minute and a half to great effect. And I don't know if that's the same body she was in. She's in uh, or. And and or if she spoke on the subject of Justin Trudeau, but if she did, I, I tell you, I'm gonna I'm gonna be looking for the video because she is devastating. Uh, to, to yeah, I'll, I'll read I'll read some of the excerpts because um, I I have them. Uh, I actually was gonna uh, talk about them on um, the unredacted show, but um, the uh, Croatian MEP uh, Ms. Love. Uh, uh said that Canada used to, and this is in response to the trucker convoy, Canada used to stand for civil rights, but now it seems more like a dictatorship of the worst kind. And then this was, this was actually pretty funny to me. Uh, said that under your quasi-liberal boot in recent months, we watched how you trample women with horses, how you block the bank accounts of single parents so that they can't even pay for the children's education and medicine, that they can't pay utilities, mortgages, 
for their homes. Um, Christine Anderson from Germany uh, said, Mr. Trudeau, you are a disgrace for any democracy. Uh, she also said that uh, um, the Emergency Act uh, was a straight up civil rights violation um, and that uh, Trudeau is a dictator that treats citizens as terrorists. And then uh, Bernhard uh, Zimniuk, um, another uh, Germany MEP, member of the Ukrainian parliament, said that Trudeau trampled on democratic rights um, by uh, cracking down on people for um, protesting health measures that were disproportionate, i.e. Um, the uh, the vaccine mandates. So a lot of these are like, you know, right winger members of the European Parliament. But at the same time, you know, even though uh, the, the people to which they're showing sympathy aren't exactly the nicest people or like the paragons themselves of um, democratic principles, the, the fact remains that nothing that they're saying is not true. Like it is true that, you know, he cracked down on Canadian rights that he froze or uh, that um, uh, the finance minister uh, gave banks a directive to freeze accounts of people who donated to the protests um, and did describe people who were engaging in protest. I don't care whether it's peaceful or not. It's the fact that you, you still have the right to protest your government, but describe them as terrorists. That is 100 Yeah, not, not a glowing chapter in Canadian civil liberties, for sure. Uh, thanks. Really appreciate you both. Anytime. Thank you so much for the for the questions, Ryan. I appreciate that. All right. Uh, next up, uh, Yaya, you've been waiting for a bit. Um, you can go ahead and unmute yourself. Hello. And ask your... Hi, I'm uh, just calling. Uh, I love your shows. I, wa- I listen to all of them. I recently downloaded this app. Thank you. Um, uh, I just wanted to ask, is there any, like, military, um, like, is, can it, is the Canadian Army right now, like, involved in any, like, military activity outside of Canada? Like, other than, was it, I know they left Afghanistan, or if they weren't there, like, are they in Iraq? Um, There's always, like, deployment of the Canadian forces for various, like, excuse me, joint military. I'm so sorry. I'm like, can you hear me? I'm sick, as a, I'm sick as a dog here, and I'm laying in bed. And I know Karen told me to just, like, take five, but when I hear questions like that, I can't, I can't help but answer. Um, the Canadian military is engaged in, like, various sort of, like, joint, um, joint operations. Uh, with other countries so do we like do we tend to uh freelance on our own no generally what will happen is that we'll um, our military will conduct like training of um training of the military of like partner nations uh we'll engage in like joint peacekeeping efforts with other nations so they'll be deployed to places like haiti for example they'll be deployed to um various places in the middle east and north africa but are they engaged in like uh like their own combat mission not not to my knowledge can you hear me? Okay, I, yes. Yeah, I can hear you. I just yeah. had one other question. Thank you for that, Aaron. I just had one one other question um, about the F-35s. I was recently listening to another podcast. I forgot what it was, but um, uh, where it was like a university professor talking about how these fighter jets are like, it's like, it's like they're buying tools for a war, like World War II, like, like, the, engage, like the rules of war now. Um, in like the this century is like the fighter jets is like a defensive weapon. Like you can't go into another country and uh, like attack it. It's like it's dangerous to like be in airspace. Like you know, like they they don't get used as much. Like mostly what's being used now is un unarmed or unmanned uh, aircrafts and whatnot. So I don't know why why they're spending so much money on these uh, on these fighter jets. 
Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, that is another another point is that there's like so much um, drone warfare going on now and everything. So it just feels like, you know, a lot of this military expenditure to me, and I've heard this in other places, it feels like money laundering. You know, it just feels like taking public funding, taxpayers money, and just giving it to these fucking weapons corporations, weapons manufacturers that don't actually produce anything that's... Um, even competent enough to be used in an actual battlefield situation and you know and, and usually just sits there collects dust and then they end up like for the F- f-35 i've read like one of the issues is that they don't have enough spare parts to like repair the ones that are you know going like basically sitting there and collecting rust so no, but it just seems they- like money laundering well, yeah, I mean, like, even if they were working as intended and they had no problems with the with with, with the mechanics of the of the of the airplane, it's still like it doesn't work in certain wars like Afghanistan and uh, Iraq. Like, it's like it didn't help them like win any war. Like, like you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Anyways, thank you guys. I'm gonna get back to work. And, uh, I love you. I love you guys. Show. Oh. Well, all, all you have to do is take one look at, for example, you know, the majority of um, tanks in the because like, the United States has like a gigantic tank tank arsenal, and you know where the majority of them are. They're just sitting in warehouses collecting dust. Like they're not they're not currently being deployed. Um, this is why, for example, during the Afghanistan pullout, um, they could simply leave a bunch of their their weaponry behind, a bunch of their their equipment behind. Because there's just so much of it. And uh, yeah, the, the U.S. has a massive arsenal of uh, um, conventional arms. But for the most part, they're not used. Like, they're not, they're not in operation. They may never end up being in operation. And what, what exists for, like, U.S. military procurement and defense spending is essentially a massive subsidy to keep arms manufacturers in business. It's not as if all of this money... The $813 billion that's being, for example, uh, earmarked for uh, the U.S. military, it's not as, as if that's going towards um, urgent projects, uh, towards military campaigns, either ones currently existing or the ones that are going to be uh, in effect in the near future. All this is, is is really just keeping these companies afloat. Like It's, it's floating them. Uh, uh, to your point, Karen, you were, you were saying it's a possible money laundering operation um i i mean yes in the sense that like you know uh it, it is taking um it is taking uh uh you know public dollars and uh putting it towards operations that that do hide um a lot of the uh, the illicit money that the u.s either makes or um enables in uh, foreign nations where uh everything from like uh you know the narco trade to elicit weapons, trade, and so forth. Um, it's it's used to cover that up, but it's also used to prop up a lot of these companies that have had the ear of uh, um, Congress and the Senate for decades. Hello. How's it going? Hello, Hi. can you hear me? Yep, we can hear you. Yeah. It's going well. How about y'all? Going well. I'm just taking a walk, so if you hear birds or wind, that's because I'm outside. I'm enjoying the world before the nuclear uh, holocaust. Um, only partially joking. Uh, I have a question. It's Canadian politics related, but it's not necessarily along the lines of the Ukraine conflict, really, if that's okay for me to ask. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm um, so I am French American and I'm 
thinking considering moving to Quebec, although I'm really second guessing that uh, in the past year, I was planning to move pre pre COVID and COVID happened. So I decided to stay where I am for now, but I was just wondering what is like the, uh, the general consensus amongst like Canadian socialists and communists regarding like Quebec separatism, if, if that's like viewed positively, negatively, if it's viewed as a possibility. Um, I know I, I, I have a lot of friends in Quebec and it seems to me that they're very, you know, self-centered in terms of they focus on like Quebec policy stuff as opposed to um, like national politics. That's just kind of what I've gathered. But I was wondering if there's any sort of like widespread opinion amongst the uh, communists and socialists. Um, how's my audio? Is it? Your audio is uh, it's on back down again. There we go. That's much better. Can you hear me now? I can hear you. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So I would say that there's like quite a huge, there's all kinds of socialists and communists in Canada. And I don't know if there's a one consensus um, opinion, but I do know, for example, the communist party of Canada has a, um, uh, has a, a view that basically there are many nations within Canada so that includes the French-speaking nations, the you know, Quebec, and also various French-speaking nations or communities in other parts of Canada, um, and also um, all the hundreds, maybe maybe hundreds, I would say, of Indigenous and First Nations. Um, so that basically, the Communist Party of Canada has this sort of um, a Marxist-Leninist view, which is that all of these nations have the right to um, self-determination. And that in a socialist Canada, which the Communist Party would want to work towards building, um, there would be um, there would be a uh, uh, it would only work if there's a voluntary uh, cooperation between nations, and that would be something that all the nations would have to work together. And and the English speaking nation, which is like the dominant nation in Canada, would have to. Um, sort of um, accept that this only would work if there's an, uh, a voluntary a voluntary nature, which basically means um, that all of the nations that comprise what we call Canada would have to agree to work together. And if anybody, if um, uh, self-determination would be guaranteed, which means that they would be able to secede if they want to, that that would be a that would be their right. So um, as far as the, you know, the sort of official Communist Party of Canada, that is the position is that um, Quebec, if there is a majority uh, consensus among the people who live in these nations, Quebec and other nations, that they would be able to secede. Yes. Uh, as far as other socialists, and I, I don't know, and as far as uh, socialists or communists within Quebec, I can't speak for them either. Maybe Q, you have a better idea, but. Uh... No, that's about right. I would also say that, um, I would also say that there's a lot less interest in Quebec for succession right now. than there was say like 20 years ago. Like, I think that people who talk about succession have not really kept up with um, Quebec politics. And what they're looking for now is not um, to be able to separate from Canada, but to have their own interests as uh, Francophones and as a unique nation within Canada, that that would be recognized. But I don't know that there's a there's an interest in having them separate from it. 
Yeah, I know that they have an outsized amount of um, influence and uh, representation in terms of like on the national politics level. Um, I, I mean, I, I follow uh, Justin Trudeau as like I, I watch all the debates and stuff, and so I um, I know I know have I have a little bit more understanding than the average uh, non-Canadian, I guess. And I know that there's an outsized amount of influence um, in national politics due to there being uh, like the bilingual rule and um, that type of stuff. And uh, I guess, does that upset other Canadians? I, I assume that it does. Um, not I really don't put that much credence into uh, electoral politics and uh, supposed liberal, democra liberal democracies. I'm a I'm a uh, Marxist-Leninist myself. I, you know, I definitely know the limits to it, but I'm just interested in getting uh, your opinions on that. I, I wouldn't say your average Canadian really cares that much. Like the <clears throat> uniqueness of Quebec politics and um, what it is that Quebec, what Quebecers want, has been so, I don't know, normalized. And we've we've been hearing these requests and demands for, I mean, for me, it's been my entire life. Um, the last time that there was any sort of, uh, um, I don't know, uproar regarding Quebec politics was uh, uh, when uh, Barossa and the uh, Parti Québécois uh, attempted to, you know, they, they attempted to have a uh, um, a referendum on uh, on uh, Quebec or succession, which failed, uh, which um, given attributed to the uh, the minority vote or we lost to the minority vote, but um ever since then like it's, it's been fairly quiet and i think that generation of quebecers has slowly aged out of the body politic and the people that are closer to my age like you know i'm, I'm a middle-aged canadian i would say like the majority of the voting block is somewhere around my age uh to maybe about like 15 to 20 years older um they generally i don't think really care that much anymore yeah, that makes sense. And uh, thank you for answering my questions. I don't want to take up any more uh, time. Always. But uh, thanks so much. I'll keep listening. So, no problem. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for calling. Um, yeah, I think that, um, I mean, I know that there is a very fraught and long and complex history, but I feel like the whole Anglo versus French speaking, um, like, I don't know. I feel a little disconnected from it, to be honest, because I don't feel like, I mean, just because I speak English does not mean that I have any allegiance to, you know, the mm. British fucking crown or anything like that. So to me, like, you know, I'm coming from a different perspective than I think um, most like, you know, your sort of uh, Canadian born, you know, European descended person might be coming from. So, or British, especially Oh, shoot. British. Sorry. I just realized I got, I got a name wrong earlier. Sorry. My brain's in a bit of a fog right now, but it was, it was uh, Jacques Pahizel that was um, the leader of the uh, the PQ in during the nineteen ninety five referendum. It was that uh, Pahizel that made the made the comments, oh. and I think like pissed, pissed off a lot of like you know uh, Quebecers of um, of like ethnic minority background. But I think since then, I, I think like both the uh, the BQ and the PQ have gone a long way to make up. And aside from like obvious bungles such as uh, the uh, the CAQ's um, push towards getting rid of, or towards like the public secularism, that is like every sort of religious symbol that isn't uh, the crucifix should not be worn by a public servant. 
um, the hijab should not be worn by public servants, etc. Um, that that obviously like riled up ethnic tensions and differences. But for the most part, like Quebec is, I would say, mostly a social democratic province, and that's the way that their votes tend to break. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I you know, I, I just want to add that when I said earlier that under the sort of socialist model, what the Communist Party of Canada proposes is the um, is a uh, sort of a, I believe, is there a name for that? Is it like a, well, I don't want to ascribe name when I can't confirm it, but it's basically the Marxist-Leninist idea of self-determination of nations, right? The national question is put out or written up about by uh, Lenin and then developed by others. But the idea being that why would for example, if, you know, if, if everybody has self-determination and, and has sovereign right to secede, why would we go work together? The que- that question is um, uh, you have to take into consideration imperialism. So the idea is that, uh, you know, individual nations could be more easily picked off by imperialists. Um, and if we work together, obviously there's, there's uh, more of a chance that we might uh, I mean at least that's that, that we might make it through and actually be able to build a better sort of um, society for everyone um, however there's lots of lots of you know nuances and, and issues that would ha- happen along the way so for example borders right in some cases with First Nations especially a lot of the um, treaties have been so uh, fucking like destroyed for so many years centuries even that it would be difficult to figure out about, you know, where borders are for various nations um, or, you know, um, language issues. So, you know, there would be all kinds of uh, technical issues, I think, that, that would have to be worked out along the way. But the idea is that it would be working towards that model of uh, sort of federation uh, that comes together, um, but has sort of um, a certain, like, has all the self-determination and sovereignty as well as the right to secede. Um, but yeah, uh, let's see. The other thing I wanted to mention is that um, the country where I'm from, which is Pakistan, originally, um, I was born there and grew up for the first uh, uh, 12 years or so of my life. Um, and I still have family there. So it's there's currently this like regime change effort that's going on. I don't know if you've heard about it. But, uh, you know, Pakistan has always been very much, um, for the most part, at least since the 1980s or even late 70s, it's been very much um, America's U.S. The you know, no, very much a puppet state. Um, various parties and uh, entities and military dictators have come and gone, but the one thing they've all had in common is that they always bow down in front of the IMF. They always bow down in front of the U.S. United States. Whatever is told to them, they do it. Um, most of them Not have no been. more. Not under Imran Khan. Yeah, so until recently when Imran Khan, who is basically, because we've had basically in Pakistan, there's been like a dynastic model. It's really just been two two families for the last like 20, 25 years, I would say since the 90s. It's really been two families and they've been going back and forth, back and forth between the two of them uh, or their agents. And there was one military military dictator who was kind of sort of this, interesting fellow but he basically came in under a military coup and then immediately for uh forgave 
the two previous very, very corrupt governments that came before him. So like the governments that he cooed, he forgave them. Like they were so corrupt. And um, anyway, so now Imran Khan, you know, he's been in office since I believe uh, 2018. And yeah, so he's, um, he is a former cricket player, very, very popular person in Pakistan for many years. Like he uh, really was, he won Pakistan, like the world cup. Like he's a huge huge uh, figure in Pakistan. And then all of a sudden he decided like after his whole cricket career was done that he was going to be going to politics. And then he like rose through the ranks. Uh, he's from the North of Pakistan, the um, um, Northern province, uh, NWFP um, Northwest frontier province. So um, it's basically the part that's closest to Afghanistan. Um, and um, uh, so anyway, so he's, um, uh, or it's called Khyber uh, Pakhtunkhwa also. But anyway, so uh, he's since he's been uh, um, prime minister, he has um, really done, you know, I mean, he's he's not a, he, I would say he's more like a social democrat, maybe, maybe, you know, with some sort of national, economic national sort of, characteristics i would say he hasn't really nationalized a lot or anything like that but he has kind of um increased like social welfare programs um and so he's tried to do some small like sm some things like that increasing like health care coverage for poor people um and 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 things like that so um which which is unheard of in pakistan like there's no there's been no public health care coverage at all in pakistan ever before so um and um and recently, he's also been working closer and closer with China and, and Russia now. Now, China and Pakistan have a long, long history of friendship. So it's nothing new. He's not the only one who's done that. Um, but he's definitely increased the amount of cooperation. And now with this recent thing that's going on in Ukraine, um, Pakistan, you know, literally the day after uh, the bombing started, uh, he went to visit with Putin and, uh, you know, whatever deal they struck with uh, Pakistan buying a whole shitload of wheat from Russia, like right away, um, because I guess they foresaw that this was, you know, sanctions were going to come down and all of this. So, um, you know, he was literally in Russia the next day. Um, so what I'm saying is that he's been working closer, more closely with Russia, which is not something that Pakistan has historically done. So that's, uh, again, something new that he's uh, developing more relation, you know, closer relationships. So China and Russia, like China, historically, Pakistan's always been close to it, even though Pakistan has always been America's puppet as well. Um, but under Imran Khan, the CPEC, which is the China-Pakistan China -Pakistan economic um um, corridor it's called it's like a trade deal between China and Pakistan which brings in like 60 something billion dollars into of investment into Pakistan um, and real investment the way China does it not the way America does it where they just line when they send aid they basically just line the pockets of the comprador bourgeoisie in Pakistan but the way that China does it where they actually have conditions and they actually you know build infrastructure and things like that um, anyway so my point is that now, apparently, there's like some kind of efforts to um, basically, and this is not the first time he's been facing all kinds of threats since the beginning. Um, he basically, he's like one of these like um, 
he's very independently wealthy. He doesn't, he like, he, for him, it's not like he could have easily just retired. He married a British woman. He has a couple of kids with her. Um, and I think they live in London, like, and then he married another, and, like they divorced and now he, he's married to someone, uh, another woman. So, and he's, he's, he's gotten very, very religious in his later years. He didn't used to be, um, which is one of the issues that I have with him. But anyway, I have my criticisms of him, but it's really obvious that the U.S. is trying to instigate um, another regime change in Pakistan, which the U.S. has done several times over and over. Um, so like every Pakistani knows what's happening at this point. Um, anyway, let's take a caller. Mason, come on up. Come on up and say hello, Mason. Please unmute and go ahead. There you go. Hello? Hello? Yep. Hey, Mason, we can, we can barely hear you. Oh, God. How about now? Okay. That's, that's better. better. Okay. I'm just holding the mic, like, right up to my mask. Because um, <laughs> I'm still masking despite that being listed. Anyway, uh, I'm, I'm at work again, so I'm just it's very quiet in here today. Um, so my question is just, like, the U.S. is putting in all these sanctions and seems to be pushing away like all these big nations and like it seems counterintuitive because um switching over to their own currency and currency erc um i started watching the episode yesterday about dollar hygiene um so i haven't finished that yet sorry that this is a little bit scattered um but i'm just like why is the u.s pushing everyone away so hard like doesn't it it just seems like it's going to backfire on them and i don't know it just just seems like a very weird strategy i know it's like the u.s is all about power and and stuff but i don't know it just seems like a silly strategy and i'm curious why you think the outcome will be whether it's their intended outcome or does that make sense mm-hmm. well that is a good question uh q do you want to take that if you feel like talking all right so <laughs> excuse me so it's been it's been uh i don't know really funny to watch how um how this whole thing has played out uh it's almost like a i don't know it's almost like like eu nations and nato nations have uh made every attempt to economically isolate russia and then expect that russia is just going to lie down and take it so I think um, I think what people because I've, I've been asked a few times, well, what what difference does it make if they're um, forcing uh, "quote unquote" unfriendly nations to purchase natural gas in rubles? Well, here's why. Excuse me. Um, about forty percent of the natural gas in Europe is provided to them by Russia, so. Uh, out of all the sanctions against Russia, uh, as far as like imports and exports go, uh, one of the exceptions that they've made to these sanctions was for natural gas. Um, obviously, they're not going to like cause themselves to freeze in the dark out of their <clears throat> out of their militarism towards Russia. They would it would just be cutting their own throats. Um, it would it would cause like absolute pandemonium inside of their own countries. And there is no way for any outside nation or actor to deliver um, liquid natural gas. So you've probably heard like lawmakers in the U.S. talk about the importance of fracking and how the U.S. can make up the shortfall. You've probably, maybe you heard about like uh, the premier of um, Prince Edward Island and 
um, of Alberta talked about how Canadian um, oil and energy can make up the shortfall. But the fact of the matter is there's just no way right now to deliver um, the oil and natural gas that they would need to heat their homes, to uh, power their electrical grid. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't happen. Um, so for the, for the time being, they are going to need um, Russian natural gas, at least until they come up with alternatives. But creating an alternative that delivers that much natural gas, like that many um, millions of cubic liters of natural gas to the entire EU, like it's, it'll take years. So here's what the options are here. Um, in order to uh, in order to be able to to meet that requirement that the natural gas is purchased in rubles, well, how, how do they actually procure rubles to purchase the natural gas with? Well, uh, one of them is that they have to um, break their own economic embargoes and sell goods to Russia. So they would have to um, allow for Russia to purchase goods in rubles. Um, they would have to, uh, or they would have to, excuse me, allow for Russia to <clears throat> purchase gold with rubles. Um, they would also have to um, um, make purchases of rubles on the foreign exchange market, um, or they could purchase rubles directly from the central bank of Russia with uh, with with euros. Now you can't really sanction gold. Like the movement of gold is pretty much um, exempt from sanctions. Uh, selling goods to Russia means you have to lift the sanctions. Um, exchanging euros for rubles on foreign exchange markets means that the rubles, well, the value of the ruble goes up against the euro. Um, and then the, the last option that is purchasing euros from the central, or purchasing rubles from the central bank of Russia. Well. Uh, Russia may just say, no, we're not going to do that. Um, so what is most likely going to happen is that, uh, or the two most likely outcomes um, are selling goods to Russia and exchanging uh, gold for rubles with Russia. Uh, the other two options, exchanging euros and buying rubles, like th that comes with too many pitfalls. Uh, exchanging rubles, exchanging euros for rubles on the forex market comes with too many pitfalls for EU countries. And also the US doesn't want that to happen. That is appreciation of the ruble against uh, foreign currencies. And then the other option, um, buying rubles from, from the central bank of Russia gives uh, the Eurozone and gives the United States way too much leverage over them. So it's probably gonna be the uh, the first couple of options. So it's it's basically like, you know, countries like uh, like Germany, um, Sweden, et cetera, have, they've only got a couple of um, options available to them. Uh, Germany probably is like the the worst off out of all of them because Germany is almost entirely dependent on um, Russian gas. Now, they've said that they're going to refuse to um, pay for n uh, natural gas in rubles. That probably will not happen. That's a lot more bluster because if they if they do that, if they say, well, you know, we're we're not going to purchase natural gas in rubles, we absolutely refuse to. Russia will just turn off the taps. We've already seen them do this. It was back in like uh, New Year's of 2008, I believe, that they uh, turned off gas delivery to Ukraine because Ukraine was siphoning off their gas. And Russia said, well, if you're just going to steal gas from us, then screw you. And they turned off the gas. Uh, so they will not hesitate, especially in this scenario where they're being economically encircled or essentially being laid siege to. Yeah, they're, they're not going to hesitate to this. 
So the the only options really um, are that they acquire rubles to make the the payments with, or that they face massive gas shortages. So I think it was in many ways it was a bit of a master stroke. Um, a lot of people are saying that they're not playing fair, but like <laughs> if you're trying to economically sanction them into surrendering, then what do you expect them to do? Like I I just I don't I don't see how like and this is not. I don't know. Uh, when people have been making this argument, it's like, well, are you are you pro Putin or something? Why are you saying that? Well, that's what options are available to them. I hope that I hope that all makes sense. Yeah. Did you did you get all that, Karen and Mason? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, I did. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, I was, that I was mean, just my question for today. I think the question of, of why the U.S. is doing question that um, it's. I don't think it's. The U.S. is doing it. I think what's happening is that the contradictions that are inherent, that are built capitalism, are literally choking capitalism. You know, if you study Marx and Lenin, this is why, I mean, I sound like a broken record maybe, but if you study, it's, it's literally like part of what the what is in there is that capitalism creates its own, uh, what's the, grave diggers, you know? Like it literally yeah. will run itself into the ground because there's nowhere else for it to go. It just keeps uh, uh, the contradictions keep happening. Where now you know the U.S. basically was trying to and NATO through you know the U.S. through NATO was trying has been trying to break off more and more and more parts of the world. You know, expand in, and encircle Russia, expand in, and encircle Russia. But the more they do it, the more other countries respond with these defensive measures, and the more people realize that what they really need to do is cut out the U.S. and cut out the countries that are going to align with the U.S. at the expense of even them. And eventually, they'll, they'll, you know, all of these other countries will just have their own ways of trading, and, and that will eventually create these problems where the U.S. is more and more isolated. Like, ultimately, when you're policing everybody, when you're, isol when you're trying to isolate everybody else, ultimately isolating yourself. And like this is a j great like historic sort of view. This is probably going to take some time. I mean, maybe not that much long. I I really wouldn't have guessed that we would be where we are now so fast. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, this is happening, and I don't think that any one entity is in control. So I don't think that they're necessarily wanting that. What they what the U.S. is wanting was the Biden administration and the sort of uh, multinational corporations that they answer to. What they want is more hegemony and more control and more, you know, balkanization, breaking up uh, countries like Russia and China into smaller and smaller states so that they can continue to extract their resources, create, you know, um, uh, asymmetrical trade deals so that, you know, the U.S. has always got an advantage, which is what they do with, for example, even Canada. You know, the U.S. has the, um, the NAFTA 2.0 or USMCA or whatever it's called um, with Canada and with Mexico and the U. It, it's all skewed towards the U.S. Like Canada and Mexico could not even like um, our fucking Christia Freeland. You know, um, she was the one who negotiated the uh, the deal, and you know it has all kinds of uh, pretty shitty deals within built-in producers and people. So these countries, including Canada, cannot even that are that are even fair. Never mind any way benefiting us. So that's what they want. They want deals with every country. That's it. That's all they want. They don't want to de-dollarize. They do all of this. They just think that their efforts are because they just want dominance. And um, yeah. So, but ultimately, they, that just one running themselves into the ground. Uh, 
Thanks. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had a follow-up question, but it's gone now. So I'll just let everyone else take over. Oh, Thank you guys I'm again. Sorry. Okay, well, come back if you feel type it in. Oh, I, I just don't want to take up too much time. I think I just remembered, though. Like, what do you – so now, like, do we think that the collapse of the U.S. empire is a lot closer? And, like, how is this fallout going to, like, affect those of us that are, like, workers in the core? That's all. Thanks. Uh, Q? Oh boy. Uh, do I think the collapse of the U.S. empire is imminent? I don't think so. I think the U.S. can, like, through its um, through military force and through economic hegemony, can sustain itself for a very long period of time. I think um, the only thing that would cause the U.S. to lose its uh, position as like the dominant economic and military force around the world is that other countries begin to align themselves. Um, in a multipolar fashion. So I think that one of the unfortunate outcomes is that they are sort of like, <laughs> they're almost like accidentally forcing uh, J.D. Pond to exist, a joint, joint dictatorship of the proletariat of oppressed nations. Um, and it's funny, like, if you look at how the uh, the breakdown of countries that have enacted sanctions against Russia versus countries that have not enacted sanctions against Russia it's almost like an exact breakdown of what J.D. Pond would have looked like back in the 1960s. Now, do I believe that these are all actually existing socialist states? No, I don't. But I think um, states that begin to develop their sense of uh, economic sovereignty outside of the, um, I don't know, the permission of the United States to be able to exist is always a good thing. So do I think that this could this could gradually happen? Sure. And I think what that does is um, like with the U.S. having less and less um, uh, hegemonic influence on global South nations uh, and that the, the fact that they have other countries that they can turn to. Um, so, for example, you know, there are countries in the, the Caribbean, countries in Africa that are turning towards or they're turning away from IMF and they're turning towards uh, China and India, like the Exxon Bank and um, uh, state banking entities. Uh, I think that, I mean, granted, it's not necessarily out of socialist benevolence. It's not exactly, uh, it's not as if that they aren't still getting something out of these countries, if there's not still exploitation happening. But on a relative scale, um, having to enact uh, structural adjustment versus not having to do structural adjustment in order to find financing for your infrastructure projects. Like one is simply a better option than the other. So I, I think gradually we, we can, I, I think gradually over a, a long period of time, we can see that happening. Right now I don't, and I, I don't see like the US empire collapsing anytime soon. But I do think that if enough nations that have developed economic self-determination um, discover as with the Chinese model, that they're able to lift millions and millions out of poverty by adopting a socialist model that the imperial core will eventually be dragged kicking and screaming into socialist modernity i have to say uh, well i have a little bit of cue right now um i do think that um we are let's call it realignment um breakdown of us um, yeah i mean i do think that it's going to overnight but i think that the if we think about where we where we and by where uh, hegemony the the dollar he has challenged um now the united states was occupying 
Sorry, Karen, you're you're or, you're uh, fading out again. Yeah, I gotta get a new. Is this much better? Me? Much better. Okay, so the United States was occupying Afghanistan for 20 years. Um, Afghans had very little um, to fight back with, you know. And yes, um, you know their tactics are were mostly like guerrilla tactics or whatever. Um, but the United States has never faced the kind this kind of adversary, and that is why they're not directly going after Russia. I mean, they know that they know they would fucking lose. Otherwise, they would already be doing it. Um, so. Russia presents a military actual adversary and China is the actual economic adversary. And these are, they're both aligned. Plus they are aligned with India, which is the second largest population in the world. And I know they have industrialization issues and all kinds of other issues. It's a very asymmetrical uh, develop, asymmetrically developed society, or let's say inconsistently developed society, Uh, but also Pakistan, even Saudi Arabia, Iran. I mean, when have we ever, if you told me five years ago that Russia, China, India, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and Iran would all be on the same side of an issue, I would not have believed you. I would have said no fucking way. That's not going to happen. But that is what's happening. And that is like over like 50% or 60% of the population of the world. Um, but also, more importantly, they are some of the biggest, uh, most, uh, you know, um, fast developing countries of the world. And plus, you have countries like South Africa, um, Nigeria, Brazil, like countries that have um, traditionally even been either non-aligned or aligned with the U.S. and Pakistan, for that matter. You know, I mean, this is what I mean, is that the alignments are shifting. Um, does that mean everybody is just going to be two camps? No, I do think this idea of multipolarity or pluriplurality, as it's called, um, that is probably, that is the, the the direction I think things are moving in. I don't think the U.S. empire, It's I don't think it's going to be like one big event that's going to like wipe everything out or anything like that. It is going to be a slow erosion over time. Um, but the fact that the United States got its ass handed to it even from Afghans, uh, from even in Afghanistan, even though you can argue that that was not its goal, its goal was to just sit there, occupy, you know, <laughs> set up the trade routes for the fucking, you know, heroin that's coming out of there, set up the fucking military, uh, the weapons uh, contracts. You know, the United States does not fight wars to to win them. They, it fights wars to keep fighting wars. It's the act and the continuation of war that's needed because that is what sells weapons and that is what continues the whole industry, which is the only real industry that the United States has anymore, which is the military industrial complex. So uh, even though I don't agree with people who think that, oh, we didn't do anything in Afghanistan or we lost or we didn't somehow we failed. I don't believe in that narrative. But at the same time, there was a um, obvious like they basically scrambled and left overnight. Like they were like, okay, bye, we're going. And like they had to like hurry 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 themselves out of there like because um you know they knew that they they might not be able to leave if they didn't leave in with those kinds of uh tactics um so what i'm saying is that you know if that's how they could that's that's what they could do in afghanistan after 20 years of being there multiple tours by multiple you know soldiers uh and 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 um commanding officers and all that like they had a whole cities built in there right and they couldn't even do that they couldn't they couldn't actually take over or even run Afghanistan. They ended up having to give it to the very forces that they were supposedly fighting all this time. Um, 
So, yeah, there's no fucking way they're going to win against Russia if they even tried, and they're not even trying. So, and and against China, if anybody has any idea of what's happening in China right now, um, yes, China is still the second largest economy. Sure, it's not, it's not uh, technically at the level that the United States is at, uh, just in, in terms of numbers. But the Chinese uh, method of doing any kind of work or business is, is, is like a thousand times more efficient than the U.S. method. So if you look at, um, if you go to any factories in China, if you go to any, any of the rural development areas, if you go to any, any of the business districts, if you go to any of the, um, um, even the fucking tourist spots, like you will understand that China works at a completely different pace. Basically, China can squeeze more out of like uh, one hour's worth of work than the United States average, you know, uh, company could out of like a week's worth of work. Like I'm not even exaggerating. This is why China was able to build like um, two hospitals in 10 days at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Like that's unheard of. Unheard of. You cannot imagine any country in the West building t- two hospitals in two, in 10 days, um, you know, fully equipped uh, hospitals. Um, so what I'm saying is that even though China's economy is technically numerically less, it is far more efficient and technologically advanced than the U.S. is right now. So there is no way that the U.S. can beat China economically or technologically. So we've gotten militarily someone else is superior to the U.S. and they know it. Economically, someone else is superior to the U.S. and they know it. Technologically, someone else is superior and they know it. And most of the rest of the world is aligned with Russia and China right now. So, I mean, if you look at it that way, it's already over. The game is over. Like, it's just a matter of now the chips falling where they may. You know, now it's just that the story that's going on, the narrative is still ongoing, but the actual game is over. And all you have to do is step on China's soil one day and realize what that means. Um, Okay, sorry. Uh, So let's go ahead and take our next caller. Jason, go ahead. Hello? Hey, Jason, you can unmute by tapping the microphone icon in the lower right-hand corner. Oh, yeah, sorry. First time using the mic on this app, so I had to enable. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, that, that was very interesting chat, and I tend to agree with Kieran on the U.S., you know, future of the U.S., um, simply because I also feel there are a couple of variables in there, like the COVID is still ongoing, and they've just been disastrous on it, you know, since the beginning. I mean, the West in general, but that's neither here nor there. Um, I actually uh, wanted to ask Kieran about... Um, there was, you know, you brought up Pakistan and India and China. And uh, more lately, we've, I mean, you brought up Pakistan, Russia and China. And more lately, we've seen sort of India also, you know, being mentioned as part of the group and some, you know, diplomat uh, visits by diplomats and these kinds of things being sort of put out in the, the, the news media. And I wondered what you thought of in terms of India aligning itself more closely in the medium to longer term with those Asian countries. Because, I mean, you know, at the moment or more historically, India has had close ties to the U.S. and and the West in general. And a lot of the, you know, revenues are, you know, from from the U.S. and intertwined with, with the U.S. and I sort of wondered what what your take was on 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 the India, you know, variable in that in that group. 
Thank you. Yeah. Um, um, I agree that there has been historic relations between India and the U.S., um, just like all countries. You know, it's, it's been the U.S. has set itself up as the fulcrum, as the sort of center point for all world trade and um, any kind of relationships you had to go through the U.S. That is changing. So the center point of the world um, economic, especially the economic system is, is shifting. And I think India is realizing that. And, you know, India has its own issues. I'm not going to defend everything that the Indian government is doing far from it. But um, on some level, I think all of these countries, India, Pakistan, uh, as well as, you know, Saudi Arabia, and even, you know, places like that, which I don't have any uh, I don't have any <laughs> love for or anything but you know sp- speaking purely from a realistic like poli- political standpoint I think they understand that at the end of the day they their t- their fates are tied with their own with their own na- nations with their own countrymen and they are you know especially a, a pla- you know uh, places like India um, they are going to look out for their national interests first and their national interest right now, um, and I think it's been the case for a long time, but maybe because, you know, I can say, for example, in Pakistan, there have been a lot of governments that have been puppet governments, uh, but that have worked against their people's national interests in the interests of the imperialists and the U.S., for example, especially the U.S. But India has always had a bit more of an independence in terms of its foreign policy. So even at the height of India-U.S. relations being very, very, you know, charmed during Donald Trump when uh, Modi and Donald Trump, you know, were were getting closer and closer, even then Modi, uh, even though uh, Trump withdrew from the Iran nuclear deal, uh, Modi did not go along with it, right? India continued to have relations with Iran through that whole period, even though I know there was pressure on India to stop doing that. But India has uh, historically been um, a close ally with Iran. So India has always had a much more of an independent foreign policy. Through the 80s, the 70s and 80s, India was uh, pretty, very, very close to the USSR. I know the USSR had... Um, uh, there was a there was a lot of um, sort of uh, interchange, cultural interchange uh, between India and, U- and the former Soviet Union. So, you know, it, historically, actually, India was more aligned with the USSR and Pakistan was more aligned with the USA. Um, but there were also changes and shifts in those as, you know, during different historical periods. But currently, definitely, India is, I think, looking more towards its neighbors um, and I think that that, you know, there is a real push for that in terms of I know within India, for example, there is a wide variety of opinions. I mean, India is a huge country, 1.3 billion people, um, all kinds of differences that every possible difference of opinion and difference of everything that you can think of. Um, you know, there are communists, there are right wingers, there are capitalists, there are, you know, uh, different kinds of communists who don't even like each other sometimes. Um, there are all kinds of people in India. And but as far as the government itself right now, yeah, I think even they are being pushed to understand or pushed to accept that they have to look out for their people. And so I think that we're going to see more of that. And in fact, they're even talking with China in a way that I think India has not done in a long time. Um, and I know I was sitting in on a space with Carl Zha that Carl Zha hosted a few days ago specifically on the topic of India-China relations. And there was some interesting discussion there. Some of it was a little... uh, I was just listening in because I I don't really know that much about the history between India and China. I mean, I need 
I know a little bit, but I need to know a lot more. Um, but it was interesting. But there were, there, I felt like there was some discussion, good discussion, and about the sort of there are historical claims and uh, disputes that would need to be taken care of. But I do think that the future of India, as well as all of these countries, you know, Pakistan, Iran, uh, is t- more towards facing towards uh, the eastern, you know, and our neighbors uh, in in Asia, as well as in other parts of the world. Uh, and not just doing everything funneled through the U.S. and its allies. So, yeah. Thank you, Jason. Um, does that answer your question? Okay, thank you. Spencer, uh, let's listen. Let's hear from Spencer. Go ahead. Hey, folks. Hey, can you all hear me okay? Yes. Yeah, we can hear you. Okay, great. Uh, thank you for this conversation. Uh, it's my first time listening to you, Kieran, and these these uh, international perspectives, especially when it comes to realignment. Uh, have been really interesting to consider. I mean, I'd, I'd never heard somebody put it like that when you said uh, that these countries represent more than half the world's population. Uh, anyway, uh, but kind of on that note, I was kind of thinking about this morning, I was thinking about climate change, and I was thinking about what motivated me to become a socialist, and climate change and seeing that capitalism couldn't solve it was one of those core things. I mean, you know, kind of keeping in, theme of, in the theme of this conversation so far, what do either of you think about our ability to, you know, the, this realignment's ability to outpace climate change or just our society in general, our world's ability to combat climate change at the pace things are going currently. Will that destruction outpace the, you know, the inevitability of socialism? I'm a little bit tempted to say yes, but maybe that's just the doomer in me. <laughs> um, Q, do you want to add something or chime into that? Uh I will say it's refreshing to hear uh, somebody who was um, brought into socialism primarily through um, environmental politics, because I will say that a lot of the people I've met personally, um, where environmental politics is their primary motivator, are almost like, I don't know, afraid to embrace socialism or uh, categorically reject it. So that's refreshing to hear. Actually, I wrote an article a few years, a couple of years back where I said that, like, if people are really serious about, uh, if people are really serious about climate politics, they would reject capitalism outright. Like, there is no, there is no happy medium to be found here. Like, there's no way that uh, you can reconcile um, stopping or at least combating climate change. You can't reconcile that with capitalist overproduction. Like, the, the two are diametrically opposed to one another. But because we have an entire political party in this country that is like their their purpose is to try and make these contradictions seem reconcilable it's it's really hard to get through to people also organizations like extinction rebellion who pull these bizarre and stupid ass stunts like you know shutting down like shutting down uh the shutting down rail uh systems in working class neighborhoods rather than going down to i don't know canary wharf and engaging in the same protest actions there like rather than um, disrupt the lives of the, you know, the uh, the billionaires and, and capitalists that are that are uh, accelerating climate change. They think that they're going to enlighten masses of people by making their workday more difficult. And when I talk to people who are organized with Extinction Rebellion, you know, a lot of the same sort of feedback it was like, well, no, we, we don't believe in ideology. We don't believe in socialism or capitalism or any of that. We just believe in saving the planet. It's like, <laughs> all right, well. You can uh, put blinders over your eyes and pretend that none of this has anything to do with politics whatsoever. But I mean, all you're doing is is 
essentially doing the bidding of uh, capitalism and pretending that you're doing otherwise. So I will say that it's refreshing to hear that. Yeah, I, if I may just respond to that, uh, I, there was that sunrise uh, graphic going around recently that Carl Bayer wrote a good post about, basically saying that like, and it, it was essentially just arguing uh, fossil fuel companies don't take advantage of this moment to jack up your gas prices and hurt you know regular people or working class people, and it it just felt. Uh, and Carl Carl's post about it was essentially uh, to the effect of it is ridiculous for an environmental organization to use this moment to argue for lower gas prices use this movement for the argue to argue for the necessity to transition to green energy like that is a bare minimum so yeah i very much agree that like not having that ideological at least understanding you know it doesn't have to be for ideological reasons it's for practical reasons it's it's understanding what this crisis is what the factors are that are driving it i.e capital and what it would take to confront something like that so yeah i just i I concur in the u.s context with the democratic party and you know all these environmental uh, climate justice NGOs attached to them at the hip. It's extremely frustrating. Oh, we, I mean, we go through the same thing. I'm not sure if you've heard about like Naomi Klein and, and the Leap Manifesto, uh, which has like poisoned the brains of the NDP. Oh, uh, or the, the Green New Deal uh, with the, uh, the Green Party of Canada. Like it's basically just like window dressing on extractive capitalism um, by a completely different name. Yeah. Um, did I just, okay, you stopped no, you, Okay. You um. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, you know, I think a lot of people just don't understand. Okay, I, I mean, I haven't talked to anybody from Extinction Rebellion, so I don't want to assume that what they think. But I feel like a lot of people who are otherwise maybe well-meaning or attached to various causes like environment, uh, uh, like, you know, climate justice and things like that, or even other issues, um, they don't necessarily understand what we mean when we say capitalism versus socialism or or something like that. Like to them, maybe there's just this lack of understanding. And I just wonder whether we need to maybe make sure that we're talking about the same things, you know? So um, for example, like this is something that has been bothering me more and more recently. The more I talk to people in spaces like this or in the Twitter spaces and all that is that I want to make sure that we're talking about the same things. Right. So I first, when somebody starts talking about something, if I, feel like I'm not understanding them or that maybe we're talking about different things. I try to first bring it back to what are the definitions we're working with? What are the actual concepts? So um, I think a lot of people really just who are in the environmental movement, they don't understand what we mean. We mean the profit motive. There is no profit in saving the planet. There's no financial profit in it. There's no finance. If you want to say, if you want to save humanity and the planet, you have to do it for its own reasons. You can't do it just because you want to make a profit. And that is the ultimate issue is that when we, you know, even even these green companies, you know, making solar panels, there's a lot of um, horrific shit that goes into making some of those and they don't actually make any money. And so they end up just kind of, um, you know, a, a lot of these projects end up getting not even getting off the ground um, because ultimately capitalism is about profit. So if your d- entire drive if you're if you make a company, oh, I'm going to sell geothermal and energy, you know, uh, storage or whatever, you want to make a profit. Otherwise, what is the point of it? So um, if, as long as we live within that system, and that is the, I think, ultimate core um, that a lot of environmentalists and climate change or climate justice activists should maybe be ex, uh, educated about, you know, like, is that as long as there's no money in it, it won't be done under capitalism. And um, and when you have something like um 
um, like, you know, electric cars, right? People are like, people give an example of like Elon Musk, like some, some people really seem to think he's some kind of savior. Um, but I mean, even he's doing this for profit. There's all kinds of uh, pretty, uh, pretty horrible things that he's involved in. Um, the Tesla products the themselves. Involved in even work? Yeah, I was like, going to say Tesla cars that, don't even uh, work. Yeah, Tesla cars, I mean. Or they are uh, constantly breaking apart and catching on fire. Yeah, they, yeah. they have like their, uh, their, their uh, QC issues. And then there's like to actually build, like for every Tesla vehicle that's on the road, there's like a trail of uh, misery behind it that the workers have to endure. Um, yep. Something to the order of like 4,000 4, Tesla 000. workers have come out and said that the company is engaging in uh, systematic racism, that uh, the plants are literally segregated. Um, I think they said that like one area in the, uh, my God, I forget the, the plant in California, but uh, an area where black workers were like relegated to was called the monkey's porch. Um, there yeah, was, I didn't know that. Yeah. There's also like the uh, um, solar panels that they've been developing uh, that they've also had their QC issues and then everything else that he's engaged in, whether it's like the, uh, the SpaceX program or like, uh, you know, his, uh, his satellites program, uh, the boring company, like none of these have produced any fruit. All of it is like spectacle for the purpose of, reeling in investors um but i don't know exactly what the plan is to have these investors actually make any money so basically everything now is this uh is one big pyramid scheme um and i think musk has probably been the absolute best at it I, I don't know that i've ever seen a uh a single character have as wide a gulf between what they say and what they promise and what they actually deliver at least like steve jobs and showmanship got you iPhones and iPads, which were, I mean, I think, you know, for all of their, their issues, you can say that the quality on iPhones and iPads um, and other like Apple products has been phenomenal. Um, but where it comes to uh, Musk and Tesla products, I, I haven't seen any company that has been that consistently bad uh, with the QC of their products versus how much their founders are, are beloved and adored. Oh yeah, I mean, there's there's a Stavros Halkius of, of the Come Town podcast has been putting out stand up recently, and he eviscerated Elon in a thing where he just said, "You guys know he didn't even make the cars, right? Yeah, you know he just bought the company." Anyway, I, I as much as I would love to crap on Elon Musk, I'd love to ask one more more serious follow up before I hop off the call. Yeah, um, go ahead. You know, and Karen, you were talking about um, defining terms and talking about you know defining like what why are we talking about socialism when it comes to climate change talking about what the profit motive is and that kind of thing i'm totally with you you know i ideologically materially i agree with you both about the the fact that you cannot disconnect the fight for socialism and the fight for climate justice however like with a lot of things like basically any issue really um, there's always going to be accusations coming from the more progressive center left of co-optation of saying, oh, you socialists always make everything about how capitalism is bad, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, at the end of the day, when it comes to that kind of ideology, all you can do is make the arguments and hope people listen to you, you know, or at the very least hope they maybe remember you later and realize that you were right. But uh, do either of you have any suggestions on how to navigate those conversations in a non-sectarian, hopefully can, you know, when it comes to meeting fresh layers of climate activists or potential socialists, how to navigate those conversations in a convincing um yeah okay so 
a lot of people have this programming from years and years of anti-communist propaganda that from McCarthyism, whatever you want to call it, that, you know, just the words communism, socialism, like it's just like boogie words to them, you know, and and if you bring those words up, then all of a sudden people's like people are programmed to just shut down like, oh, said bad words does not compute, must shut down. And um, yeah, so sometimes in some in some with some people, maybe you don't want to use those words right away um, and talk about the concepts itself, profit motive. um exploitation you know all of that like you you can also it would in other cases maybe bring up that you know humanity if if, if you're talking to somebody who does accept that climate change exists and it is a uh, that, that uh, it's anthropogenic basically it's caused by human activity if you if you have somebody who is at least at that point you might be able to ask them like hey you know humans have been around for like a million years or more maybe um, and then, you know, why is it that climate change is happening now in this part of history? And you can maybe talk to them about the history of, you know, how humanity continued to live for 990,000 years, um, you know, and then only in the last maybe 10,000 years, we started getting agriculture and you could bring them up to the last 150, 200 years where really what was the beginning of industrial capital, industrial capitalism or since the industrial revolution, as it's called. Um, and you can talk to them about the way that the climate has degraded acceler- at, at an accelerated pace since the beginning of that the beginning of you know um air pollution uh, in the ter- in terms of you know factories putting out all kinds of you know air pollution and, and um uh, pollutants in the in the water and things like that and then of course with the advent of the automobile um and then going moving forward with the more and more advanced uh, military technology uh, all of these things have extremely quickly only maybe in the last 50 to 100 years um like made things way worse than they were in the last million years that humans have been around. And you can ask people like why that might be the case. And then sometimes you have to lead people and let people come to their, come to the conclusion themselves instead of telling them what you might know is the actual conclusion. Um, So, and that takes skill and that takes patience. And it's not always something I would not recommend doing this for just anyone because you don't have the fucking energy. I don't have the fucking energy, but you know, like I don't talk to like random idiots on the internet about this stuff. Like if somebody comes up and comments on one of my things about something, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit there and like go into it because I don't know who this person is. Right. I don't know where their background is, what their motivation is. We have to consider the people's material interests. So if somebody is materially interested or invested in, um in uh you know keeping things going like if somebody works for the for the for the pentagon or or for raytheon or you know has somebody who is a a, a high end command uh, hold, a high command or whatever officer in the military or works for voice of america <laughs> you know or radio free asia or something like that like you you're going to have people who are going to be invested in the system as it is and they're not going to want to change their mind even if you bring all the evidence and the best arguments so you have to kind of know who you're talking to and what their position is and then try to reach them using various tactics and some people will not be reachable at this point um until maybe things change until things get worse for them personally which might actually push them to consider these other things but in, in terms of talking to people who might already be interested in climate uh, activism, uh, I would bring up something about this sort of historical relevance of of specifically the way that we do business now 
and by business, I mean commerce, trade, which have been going on since forever. I mean, the commerce and trade is not what capitalism is. Capitalism is specifically about profit motive, about the owning class, you know, a few people owning everything and everybody else working for them. That is capitalism. And I think people need to understand that that's what that is. Now, if you don't want to call it that, if there's somebody who just kind of shuts down, if you even bring up words like that, you can just talk about that. You can talk about, you know, the bosses are making all this money, the elites, whatever. I mean, that's why these pe- people use those words, because, you know, it's kind of Americans have this like uh, allergy to talking in, in Marxist terms. They've been trained that way for 100 years. But I think that um, there's it's possible to talk to people if you kind of talk about some of the mechanics, necess- not without necessarily using the Marx, sorry, my cat, yeah, without using the Marxist lingo. So I hope that answers your question. Um, okay, next we have uh, Free Assange is back. Hi, I'm back. Sorry. I uh, just, I thought of another question um, that's completely unrelated to the first. So hopefully that's okay. And hopefully it won't be too long. But uh, first thing I wanted to say, people, at least in uh, U.S. and Europe and Canada, still think that socialism means the government doing stuff. So I, you know, I think that a lot of people are really a lost cause, which I know isn't a good attitude to have. But, you know, I just don't really have much faith in the general population of the West. Um, But my question was related to um, Taiwan what do y'all think realistically is going to happen between uh like the US um involvement military in um Taiwan and like what's like do y'all think that there's a possibility of a hot war between US and China over Taiwan kind of kind of like what we're I think what we're seeing in Ukraine is like a mini proxy like a just a an appetizer for what we're going to see between China and the U.S. Would y'all agree, disagree? What are y'all's thoughts on that? You're still there? Okay. Uh, I'm not sure if what's, uh, what's happened to Kieran's microphone, but uh, uh, would you mind uh, condensing your uh, would you mind condensing your question, Rizanj? Yeah, sure. Uh, do, you, do you think that uh, the U.S. is going to be getting involved in a proxy war in terms of like sending weapons and money to feed to um, providing uh, support for rebel groups. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you. Yes. Um, I mean, they already, they already are. Yeah. Wait, like, yeah. They've, yeah. They've, they've been conducting like uh, joint military exercises in, in Taiwan. Uh, they've taken uh, the East Turkestan independence movement off of their terror watch list. And I would not be surprised if they begin um, providing funding to that organization as well. They're already providing funding to Ukrainian far-right nationalists. And that's pretty much what they've, I mean, that's, if you read the, the B.J. Prashad book, Washington Bullets, uh, or if you read uh, Vincent Bevins's, um The Jakarta Method, I mean, that's pretty much what they do. So not only, I don't think it's a question of will they, it's more of a question of where are they doing this? Because that's, that's always been the accepted method. Definitely. Yeah, um, I don't know why my mic out, but um, it's low again. I think that it's whatever you did to adjust it before. Something. Yeah, you may have to readjust it. Can you hear me? Hello. Yes. Yep. Yep. Yeah, we can hear you. Okay. Um. Yeah, I just think that uh, uh, we should maybe have uh more 
just we can have a longer discussion about Taiwan on another day. But um, yeah, I agree with Q. It's already happening. They've already the U.S. already has agents in, in you know in and around Taiwan and as well as in other parts. Um, these 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 yeah these have been set up for a long time. As far as proxy war, I don't think we're going to see it anytime soon. Uh, like uh, no, overtly because the U.S. is occupied with the uh, you know the whole Russia situation right now. Uh, but I know that there are, you know, there are different departments. There are many, many people working for the Department of Defense and Pentagon and all that. So, you know, some of them are focusing on Russia, while others are still continuing to to focus on China. Um, all right, let's bring in Denver. Go ahead, Denver. Please unmute on the bottom right side, and you can speak. Denver. Yep, you had it there. Here, try that one more, uh, one more time. Hello. There you go. Hey. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Um, I had one quick question. I was curious if you guys had heard Biden's statement um, regarding wanting um, Putin out of power. Um, And if you think this was an actual admission to our admin's goals towards Russia, or if you think this is truly just his moral standing. Um, That's my question. That's not surprising because Carl Bildt. Um, who was a uh, former Swedish prime minister, also uh, the first um, overseer of uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina, uh, tweeted that probably about three weeks ago, saying that that the that uh, there should be a regime change operation on Russia. Hasn't apologized or backed down from that whatsoever. But like that's what NATO countries do. Uh, so I think Biden's issue is that, as he often does, like keep in mind, that people th- people talk about him as if he's like you know, slowly declining in cognitive function, but he's always been like this. He used to, like back in 2008, when he ran in the Democratic primary for president, they called him the human gas machine. And he's been like that for a very long time. He'll he'll oftentimes say out loud the things that you're supposed to keep to yourself. And I think this is yet another example. There's nothing that the U.S. does better than fomenting regime change abroad. Uh, the uh, One of the... <laughs> Biggest problems with the United States is that we're not biggest problems. I think probably I should more frame it as biggest successes is that domestically they make it appear as if they're not capable of doing anything, but abroad they can get into any number of foreign adventures and uh, too much is never enough. Um, and you know since the uh, since the late 1800s has been able to affect. Um, policy changes in other countries just due to its sheer amount of uh, money and uh, military power. So when he says something like that out loud, um, I wouldn't take it as a gaffe or I wouldn't take it as him like bungling a speech. I would take that very. Yeah. And I mean, I think that anybody who knows anything about U.S. history knows that this is exactly what they want. I mean, the way that they have been making Putin into a boogeyman since at least 2016, you know, that is exactly what they want. They want regime change that, I mean, and I think everybody outside the U S knows this, it's only really some people in the U S for whom this seems to be um, somewhat of a surprise. And it's like, what did you expect? What did you think America wants in, in Russia? Like what, what is it that you like? Of course that's what, yeah, that is what, what they want. Uh, Biden saying it, I think might be, um, uh, I don't know what a gaffe is. I mean, I guess so. But I mean, I agree with with uh, Q that it is serious. That is what he means. That is what his handlers are telling him, talking to him about in meetings day and night all the time. So, yeah, he blurted it out. And but, you know, I don't I don't think that it's just a, 
I don't think he's morally posturing. There's no moral posturing there. Right, 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 right. And uh, that's exactly what I thought. Um, I just figured I'd ask that question because uh, he was asked, you know, are you going to walk back that statement? Like, do you really feel like what you said could have consequences on the world stage? And he said, oh, that's just my moral standing. You know, it's not something we're actually trying to do. And, you know, I just can't believe that my fellow Americans eat this shit up. I, it's just astonishing to me, really, that people can't have a broader scope of how we've treated other countries in the past and what exactly we're trying to do now uh, in Ukraine. So uh, thank you, guys. I appreciate your work. Um, that's everything for me. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate your, your coming up and speaking. Um, and, yeah, I think a lot of people want to believe that their country is doing things for the for the good, you know, overall, we're good people, you know, and, and I think I understand that I can respect that even on, as a, on a human level. But like, we have to study history, we have to be, we have to be honest about ourselves and, and about what we what and we don't have to identify completely with our country either. You know, our, what what your country has done in your name is not necessarily something that you had chosen for it to do. So, you know, I think that we, we also need to kind of remember that. Um, TJ, go ahead, TJ. Well, good afternoon, everyone. First time on the show. Appreciate it. Um, my, my question is to, to you both. Um, how, how sure are we that the climate uh, situation, ecological situation we're currently in is, is mostly driven by human impact versus other variables? Because we're talking about some significant changes, right, in human culture, way of life, uh, and the costly capitalism, right? Capital economies of scale, costs, and that sort of thing. So how sure are we that the, the climate crisis, so to speak, is is partially driven by mankind, but also can be derived with a mankind solution as well. Sorry, I don't understand your question. Are you asking whether we think climate change is driven by mankind, or are you asking yeah. whether mankind can do anything to change? Well, forest? yeah, yeah, both of that, yeah, because it seems like mostly this this climate narrative, which I think definitely has big impacts on on the way we choose to live, especially, but also policy, right, public policy, moving forward. Um, it's, it's no question that it's going to be expensive, extremely expensive. So how sure are we in general that not only is it a man problem, but also there can be a man solution as well? Well, I mean, that I, depends I, I, on... I think it's no longer really a question as to whether um, anthropogenic climate change is a thing. As to whether it's a man problem, I don't know. I, I, I do kind of feel like XY chromosomes are necessarily responsible for a lot of things i mean you can just i don't know if he meant like, like, gender. like you can just no just go ahead and blame us for everything i mean granted like we do no we i don't do i don't know if shit. that's what he meant i, I, I know, know i know okay I know. okay <laughs> um no i don't i mean i don't know exactly where you are coming from in terms of asking about whether it's a man it's a human-made problem yes it is a human-made problem there is uh almost entire scientific community and people who actually study, um, you know, everything from solar patterns to water levels to, uh, you know, every kind of climate science that you can possibly think of. They do this professionally. They do this all the time. They live it. They breathe it. They know what's happened before. They know what everybody else has studied in those fields and other fields. They give papers. They peer review each other. Um, yes, there are all kinds of uh, nefarious players among, you know, uh, academia and all that. I'm not going to deny that. But, you know, when like 90, whatever, 7, 98% of scientists are saying that this is happening, um, then I'm going to I'm going to think, yeah, that's probably true. Um, as far as why, I mean, and you can also look at, like I just finished saying that 
climate change has gotten worse in the last 150, 200 years since the beginning of industrial capitalism, since the beginning of manufacturing on large scale, like we have seen, uh, you know, starting with about 150, 200 years ago. And then uh, in this last century, with the advent of the automobile and, um, you know, airplanes and flights and then military uh, industrial complex, those the U.S. military is the world's number one polluter in the in, in the whole world. Look it up. The United States military is the number one polluter in the world. Um, so what I'm saying is that these are realities. I mean, I don't really, it's like talking to somebody who thinks like, I'm not saying that's what you're saying, but you know, somebody could come up and say, how do you know the earth is round and not flat? I mean, <laughs> I mean I'm sorry. Like, yeah, I guess I have never like actually gone into space and looked at the earth, but um, you know, like there are certain things that uh, I'm willing to accept the consensus of the entire scientific community. I on. have. Sometimes I'd be high. Sometimes I'd be high as fuck, and look back down on the earth, and I know for a fact it's round. Right. Um. As far as I, what we can. Oh, go ahead, PJ. I was going to say I came across an interesting article. Article just last week. I gave it definitely a lot of thought and a lot of research time, and I was just shocked by kind of what I came up with. Are you familiar with the extreme amount of pole shift going on right now? Pole shift. So right now, yeah. So so right now, the the most recent measurements the, this last year, back in August, the most recent measurements. Um, so the pole shifting at a rate of five point four four miles per month, mm-hmm. which just is over sixty five miles per year. And so that is a, over a factor of fifteen from what's normal. And so if we're talking about seeing the North Pole basically relocate from Canada to Siberia, of course we're going to have dramatic climate changes, right? And Okay, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna cut you off here. Right? I'm gonna cut you off here. Okay, that's I think that's I think we've heard enough. Um, if you want to continue to believe that humanity is uh, has nothing to do with uh, climate change, then you can believe whatever you want, but that is not what's actual reality. Um, it is true yeah, climate change exists. It is anthropogenic. It is human uh, caused by capitalism, specifically industrial capitalism. Not all of humanity. Not all of humanity is equally. Um, responsible for what's happening. In fact, people who are in the global south, in the less um, developed countries of Africa, Latin America, in Asia or South Asia and Southeast Asia, they are not as responsible, uh, but they are going to bear the brunt of the consequences of climate change disaster. So I really don't have the patience. I don't have the patience to talk to a climate change denialist when I'm from a country that has been devastated by, you know, um, earthquakes and floods because of climate change that is caused by, you know, countries like where you live. And then you get to come here and tell me that climate change is not man-made and the poles are shifting. Give me a break, man. I'm well, not going to listen there, to there some. There is a, there is a, uh... <laughs> excuse me, I think a well-founded hypothesis um, that uh, there is a, that uh, Earth either is experiencing or is due for a shift um, in its poles, but I I don't know that it has any bearing on, or rather that it, it, you can attribute what we've determined to be anthropogenic climate change as uh, attributable instead to um, to the the shift of the magnetic North Pole. So the idea is that gradually the North Pole is moving from uh, the Arctic in Canada to uh, the north of Siberia. But that's been happening for a fairly long time. And it's, 
I think they said in like um, there was some research out of Denmark uh, that was showing that there were um, magnetic forces, uh, one weakening and one strengthening, that was pushing uh, the um, the magnetic north towards Siberia and happening at an accelerated pace over the last about 50 years. But as far as I know, and as far as I've read, um, it doesn't, I guess, account for uh, the fact that we've basically turned uh, this country into, or sorry, turn, turn the planet into a greenhouse, um, that we've uh, begun to eliminate our uh, carbon sinks and that we are belching out you know, millions of tons of carbon into the atmosphere, which does have uh, does have a greenhouse effect. So, yeah, I, 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 I get that. Like, I think it's taking a, um, I think it's taking, a, I guess, a, a, a hypothesis, however well-founded, and substituting that for what we actually already know and saying, well, this is responsible instead. So, hey, what can we do? We can't really do anything. And I, I think that's yeah. not very helpful. I think it's distracting and deflecting, um, you know, any kind of uh, responsibility. And then for, for, for someone to say that, oh, it's too expensive for us to deal with. Like, what does that mean? Like, um, you know, there are people in, in all over, even, even the United States and Canada, whose land as wa- and water are being destroyed, who are being, you know, uh, I, I talked to some people from Hawaii and they're, they're talking about the, um, you know, you know, Mikey from um, the Twitter spaces and he's always talking and he's, he, they have done a lot of work on the Red Hill, um, you know, basically trying to prevent the U.S. military from continuing to uh, contaminate the aquifer that they re- that they rely on in a certain part where where there's a lot of people, um, and where the indigenous people in that place have relied on for, for forever for centuries um, for water. And that's just one example. I mean, and then there's lots of examples in Canada as well. Um, so, I mean, my point is that to deflect. I mean, like we, I know people who are living in communities that are destroyed. Uh, or that are being contaminated, like the Amazon forest has been like, um, what is it like a, a, I don't know the exact percentage, but a huge proportion of it has been destroyed or contaminated by oil spills and, you know, uh, uh, for, um, you know, clear cutting and things like that. So, I mean, these are real things. And for somebody to come in and then just be like, oh, it's, it's, is it man-made and it's too expensive to deal with? Like, I'm sorry, it just feels like you're deflecting. Um, I'll just be honest. Um, all right, cute. Uh, do you want to move on to the next caller? Yeah, S, uh, can go ahead. And I think for me, that'll have to be the last caller because yeah. I have a hard out. I have a hard out at three o'clock. Yeah, me too. I'm doing. I'm doing the best I can here too. <laughs> no, you're doing great. Thank you so I much. I, I even... hope I'm actually making sense. You are. I'm just. I'm glad that you're there because I. I was thinking I'll have to go solo, but I'm. I'm glad you're there. Um, go ahead, uh, Che. Sorry, uh, Che Bamao. Yeah. Um. Hi, Kieran. Hi, Q. Hello. Uh, I don't really have a question for you guys, but I just wanted to add to the conversations that you guys were having earlier, because I recall somebody bringing up about the potential for a proxy war in Taiwan. And I wanted to also bring attention to the potential conflict in East the East Pacific, because uh, South Korea just elected uh a new president an actual fascist yeah <laughs> actual fascist like from the conservative party and he supports a preemptive strike against the DPRK which is really scary <laughs> because that could 
that could escalate to a full-blown conflict where that's another opportunity for the U.S. and China to confront each other. Um, and uh, at first, I didn't really care too much about the South Korean elections, but uh, my partner, who is actually Korean, he he pointed out that the Democratic Party in South Korea, while it has its issues, and that party does advocate, they have this, they advocate for the sunshine policy, which is basically they want to normalize relations with the DPRK. They want to um, have like co cooperation between the two nations. <clears throat> and the conservative party is very much against that. They want to be as hostile as possible. They are more pro-US, they're more anti-China. And, um, and it's pretty sad <laughs> and pretty scary that the Democratic Party lost. And uh, Leslie, yeah, that's another area where potential conflict could happen. And uh, that's another area to keep an eye out on besides Taiwan. I know that um, the Taiwan is like a US, a U.S. aligned country as well as South Korea and Japan. And yeah, I just wanted to yeah. bring attention to that. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, so... Uh, the uh, the gentleman's name is uh, Yoon suk Um identifies himself as a libertarian, uh, models himself on the Milton Friedman School of Economics. Uh, while many people have called him a quote-unquote populist, um, and he does belong to uh, the People's Party, he, he rejects the label categorically and calls himself a straight-up conservative. Um, he believes that... Uh, Feminism is hate politics and calls himself an anti-feminist, uh, denies that women in South Korea um, suffer from any form of gender discrimination, and wants the Ministry of Women and Family uh, to be dissolved altogether. Also believes that poor people, like if you're poor in South Korea, it's your own fault, and that uh, poor people are a degenerate tier of society, um, that... Uh, he would like to remove uh, social safety nets. And you got to keep in mind, his, his win um, over, uh, his win over um, uh, Lee Jae-myung was by a margin of 0.8%. So it was like, like literally just a few thousand votes um, made the difference. But because uh, the... Uh, South Korean government, like it, 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 it's it's more or less the first past the post system, just like the rest of ours. Um, he can govern as if he has a complete mandate. So it's I don't know. I think I think that there are some very worrying developments that are going to be coming out of South Korea in the next little while. Like the their uh, their president is an absolute fucking madman. And yeah, I think that is that is something else that we ought to pay attention to and worry about. Uh, and to tie this back to the U.S.'s role, um, I would say uh, there's a lot of people who are saying that, oh, the Cold War era has ended, but in in the eyes of a Korean, the Cold War never really ended because um, the Korean War ended in a stalemate, and we have to remember that the two Koreas were artificially divided by the U.S., like they literally just, like, pull up a map and then decided to divide the country at the 38th parallel 
And it's really like the U.S. who, by intervening, they're the they're the cause for why there is a conflict at their borders. And they also have the U.S. also has a lot of military bases in South Korea, and there are a lot of issues with that. And so let's not forget the U.S.'s role in in the in the the division of Korea and all I hope for is for the U.S. to get out and for the Koreas to reunify someday. Sorry, Karen, you cut out again or your, your, your volume's low again. One Korea. <laughs> um, I don't know what's Great. going on with my mic, but I'll have to figure that out later. But I think, um, thank you so much for coming on, Che, uh, che Bamao. And um, yeah, I I think we're done. Yeah, I think we're good, Q. Yeah, yeah. Appreciate the, uh, the question. Um, I, I am going to, uh, well, actually, uh, real quick, normally I wouldn't do this, but uh, because it's somebody that I admire, I just want to give a, a big shout out to uh, to uh, Stella Morris. Uh, Stella Morris, that is uh, Julian Assange's wife that's in the audience, and uh, thank you for, uh, for listening in. Hope we could uh, uh, talk to you at some point. Oh, um, And also want to thank all of the audience members for uh, hopping up with your, uh, you know, with your rather interesting questions. Um, and... I'm looking forward to having another conversation on Thursday afternoon. Yes. So come back on Thursday, 1 p.m. Eastern. We will be back. And hopefully, Q, you will feel better by then as well. I'm <laughs> going to drink plenty of chicken soup, hydrate, and get some rest. Excellent. That was. I just was going to say have lots of chicken soup. And you know what? Put some spices in it. Chili pepper. That will clean. Uh-huh. Clear, that clears me out. So, all right. That's have a good day, much. everyone. Thanks. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye.